Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, welcome podcast listeners. I want to tell you a little bit about Monkey's Surf Resort. The newly built Monkey's Resort is a luxury Tello Island surf resort in Sumatra, Indonesia, providing better access to premier Tello Island waves. I've been to the Telos a couple of times already. I'm looking forward to going back. I'll be there this season. And I'll be at Monkey's Resort. Check it out, monkeysresort.com. The California Gold Surf Auction lots are open for bidding April 18th. And they begin closing Sunday, May 3rd at noon Pacific Standard Time. And lots will close every two minutes. And we have 60-plus beautiful, culturally significant, and historically relevant surfboards, fine art, imagery, and ephemera. California Gold Surf Auction, discretion, trust, and passion are the foundational pillars that our buyers and sellers count on as we maintain the integrity of the market and their investments. This is an online auction. Download the app from your app store or bid from your computer from anywhere in the world in real time. CaliforniaGoldSurfAuction.com. And FYI CBD, my friends, Caleb and John run FYI CBD. Use promo code BOARDROOM20 at checkout for 20% off. FYICBD.com. And if you live in San Diego, check out Ranch 45. I go there for my post-surf breakfast and lunch. Right across the street from the Delmar racetrack next to Pamplemousse, Ranch 45, fresh locally sourced meals prepared by my friend Pam and her incredible staff. Check them out. Ranch 45 in Solana Beach on the Del Mar border across from the Del Mar racetrack on Via de la Valle. Ranch 45. Ranch45.com. Our guest today was at the forefront of performance surfboard design, that really special time, in my opinion, when the surf world went from single fins to twin fins to tri-fins in a matter of about three or four years, 1978 to 1981. Hank Warner was on the firing lines of that transitional era, the second transitional era in surfboard design. And he was leading the way with GNS surfboards and his AGP label. 
as well as a team of riders that was A-list, including Pipeline Big Rock Charger Joe Roper and U.S. Amateur Champion Brandon Hayes. The Boardroom Podcast with San Diego legend Hank Warner. Let us begin. Welcome, Hank Warner at the uh, Boardroom Podcast, sipping some tea. Good to see you. Good morning. Good morning. It was uh, kind of hard finding your little uh, studio yeah. here with the rain. Couldn't yeah. look at the my directions that much, but uh, I stumbled into it a minute before I was supposed to be here. I appreciate the promptness. Um, there's a lot going on in the last few days here, and it's yeah. been kind of crazy. But I know that um, you shaped some boards this morning. What did you yeah, share? What did you do this morning? What, what well, kind of boards uh, did you make this morning? I had a, of a guy that's uh, been getting boards from me for 20 plus years. He likes to glass them himself and he does all kinds of crazy stuff. He uh, brought me two boards last week to copy with minor changes. It was a little 511, extremely wide squash tail, pulled in nose, 511, and a 67. So, um, I roughed those out and made the changes. It went from like two and a half inches thick for the same rail, same outline, but he wanted it closer to three because he's been riding the wind for 20 years, wanted more of a float. So, you know, when you get the mood, you got to work. Yeah, you know, for when, sure. When you do it. So I was working on that for the guy. But, um, you know, I try to do one board a day, go to work about nine o'clock until noon. That gives time for socializing, taking orders. And uh, getting one board done. So that's kind of my plan. It's all custom, pretty much. And, and you mentioned that you roughed out these boards this morning. So that tells me that you're not doing anything off of a CAD machine. Have you ever done anything off of a CAD machine? Uh, yeah, you know, um, I've been doing the hot buttards for Terry Fitzgerald since the 70s. And uh, a while ago, he sent me files by email, which I thought was pretty incredible. And I had some made up. And uh, I did one particular model, his drifter, uh, had a, an artist do a great job of uh, duplicating Martin Worthington's airbrush work out of the hot buttered catalog. And uh, the board came out really good. And it so happens that uh, Kurt G, Foam and Function, called me up and he got a board from Terry Fitzgerald that got dinged in the transit and he wanted me to get it fixed. Well, he brought it in. I put it on top of the 511 drifter I made, and it is too close right. to call. And right. the airbrush was not the same airbrush, but the style was great. And I, I just kind of went, it, what a reasonable facsimile right yeah. here. It was, it, so that type of stuff I've done off the CAD machine. Other than that, everything like I did the day, the guy's boards, the copy with a little change, I wouldn't have enough uh, files to do what I do every day because you know 11 foot 12 foot boards down to four elevens you know wide boards hull boards fishes and anything in between so uh, you know it would I pay a, a CAD machine 25 45 bucks what I can do in 20 minutes to 45 minutes at one board a day and oh, that's kind of my income so right I don't really patronize the CAD machine much right and you mentioned um, Martin Worthington and I think I got his name right. 
Yes. He was the guy that did all the groovy sprays on the old Terry Fitzes from the 70s? Yep. When, uh, when early 70s, uh, Terry hooked up with Martin. He was an art student and just told him to, to go crazy, and that kind of created the image of uh, all that yeah. Fitz crazy, uh, you know, airbrushed bottom boards. really insane. And, yeah. And uh, he's, he's older now, and I think he's back doing it. And um, I tried to emulate a lot of those boards over the years, and I found that the air. You mean from an art standpoint? From the art standpoint, yeah. yeah to get that look, that hot yeah. buttered surfboard look that yeah. T. Fitz did the Quiver Madness pictures. And I'd find the guys around here would either make it too cartoony, too real life, too graphic, stencily thing. But I, I happened to find a guy that. Uh, for a little bit of cash, check, however, money, uh, he really did a good job of the freehand and the uh, illustrated look that Martin had, so I'm really happy with that. Is that a guy that you want to announce his name here, or are you keeping it under wraps? Yeah, I keep it under wraps yeah. because uh, yeah. he's pretty expensive, but uh, yeah, people see the boards that I'm doing now for Terry off the CAD machine, and uh, they look like they came right out of Australia. I'm stoked. I have a board here I'd love you to just take a peek at. It's actually in the auction that's coming up, and it's a Terry Fitzgerald. But we had to um, – it's, it's, been, it's been redone. And this is the deck. I don't know who did the art. This board just came to me. I don't know anything about it other than it's in the auction, and I know it's not original. That's, this came from Randy Rarick's um, – I would say if it came from Randy Rarick and it was made in Hawaii, it was 90% sure it was a board that Terry shaped – up in uh, Jack Reeves' house, and Jack Reeves glassed it and probably did that. But, but, what but what I'm suggesting to you is I, I think that the board was made in Hawaii and Jack probably glassed it and everything, but it was so destroyed that somebody took this and popped it off and put new glass on it and did the color work. And I'm wondering if that looks like something that you would go, yeah, that looks like Martin Worthington. No, not at all. This is more like the uh, resin... Um, like a tiger stripe. You know, abstracts that people are doing now. Yeah. And I'm looking at the board. For one, uh, I doubt if he took the glass off because it looks like it was a blue tint underneath. Yeah. Um, and it's got the hot buttered logo with the shape designed by Terry Fitzgerald on there. Yeah. Which is preserved. Yeah. And so what I think, it might have been sanded to heck. I don't know what the weight of the thing is. But um, this this looks like a about an 8.6 Sunset beach model that terry rode that he used to have a ice blue tint with a little rainbow on the that could have been sanded off i think somebody just to camouflage the damage yeah. done to the board he just did the yeah. radical abstract over it but if you look real close you can kind of see the light blue tint underneath and i think that's probably the original glass job yeah take a look at this by the way, listeners, this is probably boring the shit out of you, but we we're looking at. We got. We're, we're look, but real quick, that's the bottom of the board. Wow. And obviously, it's not an original, and they're trying to do a facsimile yeah. of Martin Worthington. Yeah, that's that. A lot of know, people miss the note. You know, the other alternative is because when Terry would go to Hawaii every year, um, somebody in Hawaii may have tried to do a board that he custom shaped over there. To look like that but this looks like it's got a lot of stuff going on but uh doesn't look like an original martin worthington what was really cool about martin worthington's thing is he did it with 
um, lacquer paint. He sprayed lacquer paint on the foam. Hmm. And I think that's what made it pop. What does that do? What is what? I, I'm not. It just was brighter, uh-huh. more it's... vibrant than mm-hmm. um, than you know the airbrush that would soak into the foam. Uh, I actually, when I started shaping for Terry in 1977, uh, I thought he was going to come to San Diego and give me all his templates. And he sent me a ticket to Hawaii instead and said, "Meet me here. We'll do it here." And so we started sh- shaping about 20 boards together, and he gave me all his templates. And then. That was in 77, but through the years, he's visited here and sent me templates and keep in touch with them. And like I said, that CAD machine stuff's pretty cool. Yeah. To and duplicate his original quiver shots. Yeah, that's apparently, according to what Kirk's brought over, it's, do you think that you could get that close if you just hand planed down a blank? Could you, could you nail it sure. as good as the well, CAD? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, shaping a surfboard is really just a science. Yeah. You're, you're basically shaping negative space. You look at a board and you, your mind's eye sees what's outside of the line that you're trying to get to, and you just shape it away. And you, you know, divide the blank, uh, the bottom, the bottom rocker, and you get the profile, the deck uh, foil of the, of the blank, and then you just pull the deck and the bottom together in the rails with that foil going right, and, uh, you know, yeah. put it right on. Yeah. It's, it's pretty tedious, but, you know, it's, it's not that hard because yeah. you're doing that even when you're just shaping a, a board anyway. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned science because my first question here for you is actually, from a shaping standpoint, do you consider yourself a mathematician or an artist? <laughs> I actually consider myself manual labor more than anything. <laughs> right. Because it's, it's just like digging a ditch uh, in the shape that you want. And, um, you know, it's uh, kind of finessing. Um, when you get close to what you, what you want, you look at it. And what I do is I look at a blank, from as far away as I can get it and still see it. Because if you look on top of it, you really don't see the whole picture. But if you look at it from 20 feet away, you see the profile better and you see the outline better. And once you get all that tuned in, then it's just the neatering of, you know, how far up does the edge go? How soft is a rail and all that kind of stuff. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that takes a little bit more time than the old production days when you just shaped the board and made sure it was the right outline and the right thickness and it was even yeah but now you know you but it's pretty easy it, when with blanks nowadays when i started shaping it was a big block of foam and you could tell by the surfboard who shaped it because of their own personality now with all the blanks being so close tolerant you know the rockers are already in there it's you know it's not that big of a deal that's interesting yeah. so there's like a homogenization almost of the totally. end product and that seems kind of like a I mean, I don't know if it's good or bad, but in a weird way, it makes me somewhat sad. Well, I'll tell you how I run into. Because I've been shaping so long, I've had people bring me boards that are really old. And in the transition between Clark Foam going out of business and new foam companies coming in, uh, I've had several guys going, oh, I took this board to so-and-so, and it was totally different. And I look at it, and I go, yeah, he, he got a current blank that's popular. You've got to go back to – if you don't have the blank that's got the, the board inside of it, and, you know, when, when the 90s got all thin and flippy, that nice 80s look that is kind of now happening again with the thicker foil all the way throughout, more even, fuller rail, there just wasn't the foam in that place. Uh, so, you know, you got to start with the original blank. And there's a lot of boards I have to get an oversized blank just to find the thickness for a board that short because they're all so close tolerant. Yeah. But that's, that's the first thing. People, they want to order a board... And I go, well, bring me what you're writing, 
because I have to use that to get the right blank to start. Right. And I have a rocker pattern that I can put down and get the thing just right. And it, uh, it works out if you divide and conquer, you right. know, rocker thickness, right. And then you just get the outline, right. And then you just pull the nose that the, 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 the deck line to the rail line. And then you got the board. What if I brought you a board from, say, 1995 or whatever, or let's just say the 80s, and it was obviously it was a Clark foam blank. Right. And I'm like, hey, Hank, I love this board. Please replicate it as close as you can. And you'd be like, Scott, Clark foam's out of business. So we're already – would that be the case where you'd be like, we're already stepping back. Like it's going to be kind of impossible to get the flex, the stringer. I, is no, that crucial? No, because like I said, I, I just did a board. A guy brought in a 510 – that was built in the late 70s single fin. And this was a thick, thick mo board, uh, rail-wise. And uh, basically what I did is I, I got one of the A-series blanks from U.S. blanks that uh, is like for the fishes. So it has the foil up forward and the thin the tail that kind of looks the, the look of that 70 action. And, you know, the board's going to be two and seven-eighths inches thick. And, the, and there's... Uh, several blanks from them that are well over three and then it's just a matter of fitting that short board on that say a 610a cutting it off and then whittling it down that's why in in those cases i use the higher density foam because i'm going to go so far into the board to find it and um it gets a little soft yeah i mean you get you get people they 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 rave that they can't believe that it's it's a clone of their board yeah. because they like in that case, that person had a, a experienced shaper do it and it wasn't even close. You just, but you just gotta, <laughs> you gotta look at it. You gotta, yeah. you gotta see what you're starting with. You can't yeah. just grab a blank and then, Oh, just make it like this. You know, you, yeah. you, you got to start with something that's got the board inside of it. Yeah. And I could do that. If you brought me a board, I could, but I, I could think there's it. a challenge here. I, it's funny you say that because um, I wasn't going to go down this path, but cause it's sort of selfish, but I have this wonderful, board that Mike Henson made me. It's, it's my favorite board of all time. It's a Twinser. He made it in probably 2003 or something. And I've tried to have it replicated many times. I had Mike tried to replicate it. I had, um, I've had other guys like uh, John Keyes. I've had Ekstrom make an ASIM out of half of it. Like I've, and, and we've always been a little bit off. Like I've, it's never just been like the same board where I was just like a, like a, a used pair of jeans or something, you know, right. where I was like, yeah, this is it, you know? And I've, and I've gotten to this place where I'm like, maybe it's just, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe it's just because the foam and the stringer, like the flex pattern's just not the same. Like, and I'll never get there. Like it's, a, you're, you're right about that. There are different, uh, construction, uh, stringers. I mean, uh, the, the fiberglass, the sanding, you know, that, that alters. The hardest part about duplicating the board is knowing when it's the right thickness for when it's glass, it's not going to be thicker, even though, you know, I mean, just a, a minor amount, you can feel yeah, it. Right. And um, stringers have changed. And if you're that sensitive, man, lucky Well, I, I don't know if I'm that good. I don't want to <laughs> say that, but, but I've just noticed that it, for whatever reason, it just wasn't quite the... My, my favorite saying is that we speak in extremes to describe the subtleties when people come in and want to know the difference of something. I go, you know, I'm, I'm over amplifying it to give them the picture because it, the subtleties are so minute. And, yeah. you know, you're definitely right. Flex patterns and things like that 
do change. Your weight changes. Uh, the the foam changes. Yeah. But, uh, you mentioned stringers, which I've often I've spoke actually. Uh, Javier from XTR sat here about a year ago and did a podcast with me. And his whole thing is the stringer's obsolete. Now, I know that's an opinion, and Javier's an interesting character, and, and I love the guy. He does great work. But I'm interested in the idea of can't we get to a place where all the stringers are the same? In other words, are wood stringers obsolete? Can't we get to it? I don't think wood stringers are obsolete because uh, if you take any board and put it deck down and step on it, you see the flex of the board. And the stringer pretty much holds that in there. Um, the only problem is, is where's the grain on the stringer you get today that you're going to get tomorrow in the tree? Could be in a different place. I mean, I... What about a graphite stringer or some sort of something, a composite of some well, sort that's consistent? Uh, I think that the human body, muscle tone can adjust to anything once you get used to it, and that'll feel normal. And I don't know if an engineer could really mic out and make identical flex patterns in, in any surfboards, even made out of the same blank, the same size, the same glassing conditions, because, you know, I mean, the grain of the, of the stringer could be off and like yeah. that. But that is like, that's really splitting hairs. Yeah. Um, I tend to think, uh, <laughs> in Javier's case, he does a lot of epoxy that yeah. stiffens the board up yeah. pretty much. So in, in his case, yeah, maybe the stringer is obsolete. But um, I still use the old polyester, you know, I do EPSs, but. Um, what do you prefer to shape? Um, anyone who wants to <laughs> Okay, that's the good <laughs> boilerplate answer, but isn't it the fact that the, the polyurethane foam is just a lot funner to shape? It's just an easier, softer, and I don't know, by the way, I've never shaped one of these. Okay, here's the two variables. You do a polyester blank. And it's going to be a tint. You really got to fine sand it and make it clean. Uh, it cuts really easy with the power plane and all that. You get an EPS blank. It's a little bit more ragged. But the good thing about the raggedness of an EPS blank is when you come to fine sand it, it's not as diligent as on a polyester blank because you're going to seal it with spackle. And that covers up a multitude of scratches and gouges uh, and, and stuff like that. I see. So... Um, it, finishing an EPS blank is a lot easier than finishing a polyester blank. And you have to go a little slower on the EPS blank, but I, I kind of have a couple of methods I use that makes it pretty easy. Yeah. And um, it, it's all the same. To what me. do you ride? I have a 6.4 EPS board and a 9.2, you know, regular old high-performance longboard. Yeah. Those are my two boards that I go for back yeah. and forth. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm 70 years old, so I like the paddle of a 6.4. It's, it's pretty big. I mean, I'm 155 pounds. You could probably paddle my 6.4 because it's real buoyant because it's EPS. But um, it's riding that after I've ridden my nine-foot board, it just feels like I'm on a skateboard, like I'm not in the water. Yeah. And so this particular board I'm talking about, I've had for almost eight years. Really? Yeah. And it's lasted really long. And, um, why wouldn't you make yourself an exact replica? Of you've that? heard of the plumber's pipes. <laughs> There's so many times I've made myself a surfboard trying to, you know, get what I want and it just doesn't come out right. Or 
I've got it shaped and it's going through and someone goes, I want one just like that. And for the sake of time, I go, well, you can have that one. Right. So really the last time I shaped myself a surfboard was probably 2017. Wow. I had a Superwolf Glasset and it's a groovy board and I've had Joe Roper totally repair it once it gets dang, you know, dinged. And once you get a, a ding repair back from Joe Roper, it's brand new. He cleans it up and makes it new. And, and I've had him do that on a couple of those boards and it, I get them and it's it's like a brand new board again. Yeah. Uh, I'm used to it. Yeah. Well, hey, a quick break in the podcast to tell you about a relatively new podcast from my friend Dave Prodan. Surfing isn't just a sport. It's in my very fiber, the genetic cellular makeup of who I am. Whether you're an avid surfer or have never surfed at all, the philosophy of surfing applies to everyday life. If you have ever surfed or been curious about surfing and wanted to know more, there's a new podcast you can listen to, The Lineup with Dave Prodan. The conversations had on The Lineup with Dave Prodan won't just give you insight into the sport, but will help you understand the basic universal principles of surfing so that you can apply them to whatever your passion may be. For me, at its very core, and I know this sounds cliche, And a little bit of vomit is in my mouth right now, but it's true. Surfing is spiritual. The World Surf League's The Lineup. Check it out on the Himalaya app or wherever you get your podcasts. The Lineup with my friend Dave Prodan. Check it out. Let's go back a little ways. Um, Tell me about where you started surfing, when you started surfing. Well, fortunately... I grew up in Mission Beach, and uh, right on the beach. And so uh, this was in the days when the only time the uh, fireworks in San Diego were right out in front of the amusement park. And so the beaches was were always just empty except for 4th of July. I could ride my bike in Mission Beach with no hands all the way up to Crystal Pier and never see another person except for maybe 4th of July – Memorial Day or, you know, a really good summer day. So living there, there when I, I started rafting, you know, catching waves out there before lifeguards put flags up, you know, we just go out as kids. And uh, one day my older sister was hanging out with these group of guys at the end of our court, which at this point I moved from South Mission to Kennebec Court. And one court up Kingston was a group of guys from Mission Hills that left their board at a guy's house. And I was 10, and they go, oh, here, try it. So 10 years old, I was probably 60 pounds, four foot four, and had a big giant Hobie, and I hopped on it, and they pushed me into the wave, and uh, in Mission Beach, the sandbars, the waves break outside, and then the soup reforms. Somehow I caught the soup, and it reformed, and I started angling and kind of in a gorilla stance, and I rode it all over the beach, and they went, oh, you're a natural. So... <laughs> Then from there, um, a lot of Arizona people would come over and, and they would rent a house uh, along our court. Now, our family was from San Diego. We had no place to go, so we were there year-round. And this one time, this uh, uh, Arizona guy with a cigar came up to me and said, Hey, kid, you want a surfboard to ride for two weeks? I, what, what do you mean? He goes, oh, I rented this from Don Clark Coffee Bean down on Ventura Place. And 
for two weeks and my, my son's afraid of it, you know? And so I, sure. Well, it was a 710 Velzi wood board. And I had that all to myself. And I just drag it out, surf right out in front of my court. I got stoked. And then, as luck would have it, my oh, sister. Yeah, balsa? It was all balsa. Uh-huh. 710 balsa. This is 1961. Yeah. Then, as luck would have it, my sister started dating a guy that was a uh, really good surfboard craftsman who started making boards in the late 50s for his uncle, Lloyd Baker. Uh, and his other uncle was Skeeter Malcolm. It was Billy Castor. So I would ride my bike over to Billy's factory over uh, Midway Drive, where the Midway Drive-In was, and, you know, clean wax off of boards for 35 cents. Well, long story short, he made me my first surfboard. I got it in October of 1961. and uh, An Olympic? It was an Olympic surfboard, yeah. yeah. And Billy did the whole thing. Uh, of course, you know, he played games. I come into our house, and he goes, oh, I couldn't finish your board. I could smell the resin. It was still going off in my mom's bedroom, you know. <laughs> and so that was that was how I got it. And then um, that next year, I started going to PB Junior High. So I'd ride up from Mission Beach past Crystal Pier. And there was about eight or nine of us that we'd just surf Crystal Pier before school, after school. And the GNS Surfboard Factory was right there a block away from Crystal Pier. So I just started hanging out in the factories and, you know, kind of, got into it that way just yeah. luck of the draw you know like ding repair after sweeping up you maybe got into ding repair and- yeah i i uh, i floyd smith uh, got me to start working when i was about 13 ding repairing and i would just mimic what i saw the guys do because a lot of it was basically sand down an old board and then refinish it with uh, colored resin and i would just mimic what i'd see hot bat swan or one of those guys doing walking the board out keep walking it until it started going off and then i was doing that and they came out really good yeah huh. so kind of um, got in there i heard somewhere um from one of your friends who i researched before you came over that at some point you had the gns logo silk screened onto your back oh yeah what's the story there story on that is uh Going from uh, PB Junior High straight down Emerald Street to uh, Crystal Pier, going by the GNS shop. It's now a place called Duck Dive. It was Tug's Tavern. Before that, it was a different bar. Before that, it was a slot car place. But it used to be the Gordon Smith little sales place. And where Butch Van Arstel and Sanded Boards, Grant Reynolds would gloss them. Well, when boards were made back then, you would put the color on top of the sand job and then put a clear gloss over it. Well, either tape off the string, uh, tape off the sticker, or they had a silk screen, and they would silk screen it where you wanted. That's where uh, we'd go down two blocks to the Penny store, buy a Penny's Towncraft T-shirt with a pocket on it for a dollar ninety, bring it when we got a new surfboard, and when they would stencil our board with the GNS logo from the silk screen, they'd give us a T-shirt. Well, this one day I had a Henson that it was shaped. It was sanded by Skip Fry. He wrote on the nose. Uh, it's been in ads uh, in Australia. They they made it uh, a, a life size poster the, in about ten twenty years ago. Uh, all these stickers, and in the middle of that, Floyd said, "Don't move, Hank." And I didn't move, and he screened the back of me. And they all got excited. They called Roy Prill. They came down, and they got that board with all the stri- all the stickers on it. Had about twelve stickers on it, different shapes and sizes, and. 
you know, it was a label proud to wear. And then when Gordon Smith in Australia got, got bigger toward the late seventies, they copied the ad and did the ad. And, um, it's, it's just kind of funny. And nowadays kids look at that and go, well, man, did you get a tattoo? You know, yeah. it was, it was a silk screen that, you know, once it got in the water and flexed my back, the paint would just fall mm-hmm. off. But yeah, I've got several pictures of that standing, holding the board, uh, waxing the board up. Um, actually I went to Noosa four years ago when I was in Noosa, Dave Wilson, who had the genus label, gave me a really neat t-shirt that was embossed with Gordon Smith and that image oh, cool. of me on the back cool, so right. i can wear that and that's me still have it yeah yeah that's cool yeah you mentioned some names um you've mentioned bill castor and of course um floyd and larry gordon floyd smith and skip fry and mike henson right um and i know there are many more um but i'm just wondering like from a surfboard building um influence who was Who's your greatest influence as far as craftsmanship? Well, or is, the, the, am I putting you on the spot here? No, no, no. I mean, honestly, here's the deal. So I, uh, I didn't have to shape surfboards. I had Billy Castor would shape them. Mike Henson would shape them. Larry Gordon could shape them. John Hawley would shape them. I even had McTavish shape a board for me when he was over here one time and he threw the cutout blank on the floor and said, how, see how it goes. And next I know he's, banging me over the head with his arm saying that I'm tucking into the curl and I'm riding it. So <laughs> Mike Diffender, I had, I had the greatest shapers of all time, but I saw a lot of people shape and I attempted to shape some boards just for, for shits and giggles and that. So when I went to Australia in 1970 and when I got there, everyone was still kind of on the, the softy rounded rail kind of thing, short boards. And I had had a, a Henson, the downrail Henson model. And so I'm in the GNS shop in uh, Cronulla. When you say downrail Henson model, do you mean like a rainbow thing or more like a red fin, like a big? No, no after the red fin, this is when Henson was making the downrailer with the beak nose. Like that yellow the, board with the blue? The yellow before that. And he made me one. It was, it was a, a Bane, but it was a Mike Henson model, all opaque with the nifty pin lines. And he did some interesting things on that that no one even knew at the time. He was the original of the down rail and how they worked. But so I, I shaped myself one of those at the GNS factory in Cronulla in Australia because I'm in Australia and I wanted something that I thought was cool. And what they had was just big, wide, round, softy and, and that. Well, the sander, his name was Kirby. He goes, oh, I'll, I'll take one of those. So that was my first custom order. <laughs> Board number two? <laughs> yeah. Board, well, it was actually like board number 10 or 11, but yeah. it was first custom order. Yeah. And an interesting thing about that is his name was Kirby. He was the sander. And when I was in Noosa in the last couple of years talking to the old guys that worked in that factory, I said, well, what's happened to Kirby? Oh, no, no, he's, he's passed away, you know, blah, blah, blah. But his son's doing really good on the tour. I go, who's that? Josh Kerr. So it was, oh, Kirby. Yeah, his name was Greg Kerr, and they called him Kirby. So I found out 30, 40 years after the fact that my first custom surfboard that I shaped in Australia and in my whole life was for Josh Kerr's dad. Wow, that's a cool And so um, when I came back from Australia, I got down there with some money in my pocket and uh, bought a car, traveled around, went to Byron Bay. Uh, One of the funniest stories that's kind of apropos lately is I'm driving from Cronulla to Byron Bay, 
And I stop in Coffs Harbor on a Sunday afternoon. The town's just deserted, you know, late, late 1970. And I see Bob Cooper, you know, surfboards and things. And I, oh, Bob Cooper. So I pull in, I walk up. It's like a house on the main drag. And I'm looking through the window. Of course, it's closed. And he's got all these groovy things in there. And then I go walk back to my car and the door swings open. Hey, Yank, come on in here. And I, it's Bob Cooper. And I go, how do you know I'm, I'm American? He goes, well, first of all, you parked backwards because I pulled straight in instead of backing in. And second thing, you've got a pocket on your T-shirt. So all he wanted to know was what was happening with the hints and down rail things. Uh-huh. And the hints and down rail things, people, uh, when we started doing edges on the tail of the board. So did he, did he see the, did he ask to see your board? Or I didn't have. I, how did he know that you? Well, was he just like he just knew that that's what's happening in America is the Hinson down. Yeah, well, I, somehow you know that I I had had a Hinson model, the, the newer one. It was a six ten, uh, you know, all down. But the thing about the Hinson model is when the late sixties, when the shortboard came in and people started making like the S deck board, the kicked up nose, the thicker in the tail, and that hard edge would go up. And then they started putting the hard edge further up, and they would track out and dig. Yeah. And so they go, oh, that's that's no good. So when Henson did it all the way around, they're going, oh, that's going to track. But it didn't. And Henson goes, this is why. And he threw the board on the ground at the select surf shop. And the thing, like a teeter-totter, rocked. Henson put tail rocker. So when that down nose wanted to create lift, the tail could lift up. And the old boards like that, when the edge wanted to lift up, the tail would just bind it. It would just go in. So Henson did the natural rocker. And the th- even thickness flow and the down rail thing. And the other thing is people tried to copy his boards. They didn't realize he had that rocker in it. And it was a hard edge down rail. They would just make a flat bottom of the hard edge. But he had a crown in the bottom. So not only was the board released nose to tail on the edges, it was released side to side, rail to rail, because it was slight crown. But it felt like a flat down bottom. And, you know, uh, Mike had taken me surfing when I was – 13, 14, and a lot of different surf trips. You know, he went to the same high school, not the same time as I did. He was, you know, 10 years older. But, um, you know, hanging out with those guys, they would, you know, Butch Van Arstel would pile all his grimmies at Crystal Pier and drive us up to La Jolla Shores in his car. So when you hung out the beach and you surfed there all the time and the good surfers were there, you know, they, they took care of us and they were stoked to show us new things. So with that in my in my memory bank, you know, I was able to have a cool conversation with Bob Cooper. I, I had met him at San Miguel years before when he was with uh, Doc Stern, who wrote the surfing guide to Southern California. He brought him down there. But uh, what was Bob Cooper like? I've, I've read recently, obviously, rest in peace. He passed away recently. But just, um, I mean, I've heard wonderful things about the guy. Uh, you know, he's an original. You know, I mean, just he had the, the beard. And he, the had the, he had the beard, the crazy clothes. And um uh, you know, years later, uh, early 70s, when uh, I got involved with Yancey Spencer in Florida, we'd look at every magazine you'd get. Well, there was the Surf About magazines from Australia, and uh, it was even before uh, the the ones that uh, Bruce Channon and Huey and Hughes did. But um, there was an interview with Bob Cooper, and he said, oh, most important thing to me is my God, second is my family, and third is surfing. And we were just like, what? Surfing's third, Bob. We, we couldn't comprehend this, but um, you know, I, I've spoken to Bob Cooper over the years since then, and um, you know, just a total individual. Um, 
he had a story that I really dug on how um, how I kind of got into traveling to the East Coast after I went to Australia is when I came back to California. Everyone was pretty much trying to ride a gun, just standing there, riding a too narrow of a board for our waves. And I I, I wanted that more high performance thing. And um, the group of guys down in the Gulf Coast of Florida, Yancey Spencer and Beezer Turner and those guys, they were into high performance surfing and short boards and ripping and the waves were good for that. So um, that's how I got involved with him and actually started my first own label in 71, Atlantic yeah, Gulf Pacific. I, Atlantic Gulf, Gulf Pacific. Pacific. Yeah. I had heard that you, you would load up a trailer with stuff and just like blanks, all the, everything physically needed I, to build I would, a board. I, I would, every year, starting in 1972, in October, November, I would get a trailer, I would load 50 blanks, the drummer resin, and all the accessories. I'd get the best fins, Obiashi's wood glass-on fins. From up here? From up here. Yeah. I'd, I'd get them, you know, because I lived here. Yeah. And uh, I would get blanks from Larry Gordon, because Gordon and Smith was blowing their own foam. And I would drive back to Pensacola, Florida, which is, a, I mean, I've got the best surf there. It's incredible. Like surfing in a swimming pool, the waves there when they come. My wife's from Pensacola. Yeah, I, I love it there. Yeah. I'm going there to see the Blue Angels in July with my family, cool. staying on the beach. But anyway, I would set up a little glass shop, and I would do six boards a week by myself. I would shape them on Monday, and if there was going to be color on them, which would be airbrush, I, I would finish those first and paint them so that on Tuesday – I'd glass one side. Wednesday, I'd glass the other side. And before it'd go off, I'd hot coat it. The next day, I'd come in, hot coat the bottom. Friday morning, I would, and then I'd route the boxes in or glass the fins on. Sand them Friday, gloss them Friday night, and then polish them on Saturday. I'd do six a week. And I'd do basically 50 boards in a couple of months. And I did that from 72 to about 77. And that's... Uh, that was all through Yancey's Interlight Surf Shop. And, you know, Yancey, I made him a board. It was a copy of a Skip Fried Egg. Uh, the board's still around. It's the first board to win money in a surf contest in a man-on-man. Sorry, Peter Druin did not invent the man-on-man. The Caton Manufacture Ripoff Contest in uh, Atlantic Beach, North Carolina, was the first one. And it was a, a double elimination. And Yancey came out. He beat Nueva in the semi. He met Dale Dobson coming from the other end in the finals, and neither of them had lost. So somebody had to beat the other one twice. And Yancey beat Dale Dobson two times to win the thousand bucks. Now, what the, year? This was 1972. Yeah. Wow. And so uh, quite a few years before the supposed well, first the, man the stubbies on man. in 76 77 yeah, like, that. like that yeah. but yeah no this this was uh yancey won a thousand dollars because to enter everyone put in a hundred bucks and it was the manufacturers to do that and uh the thing about that which is really cool is uh yancey had gotten 10 plastic fantastics on consignment in his shop before this he got robbed somebody stole all the boards you mean boards from Huntington yes, or Westminster or whatever? No, right. from Huntington. Yeah. yeah, the guys from Huntington yeah. Beach. Well, after he won that contest, he took that $1,000 and sent it to the Plastic Fantastic guys to pay him for the boards. Wow. Within a month, somebody comes up to him and goes, hey, these rednecks out in Cantonment, Alabama, they're selling these boards. So they told the guy to go buy one. He came back. They got the police. They go out there. 
they can't find any any uh, you know visual of, of a surfboard around. And then the the sheriff that went out there finally noticed around the attic crawl space with some dirty fingerprints, and they climbed up and they found them all. So cool. Not only did he do the right thing, he got them back, yeah. and um, you know, and that's what happened to the first thousand dollar first prize surfing wise that I'm aware of that's in 1972. Pretty- that's an interesting point of history that yeah. needs to be corrected. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've had fun with uh, uh, Jeff George on that one. Sam? I'm Sam George. Yeah, yeah not, as, not Jeff. I'm thinking of an old surfer from Rancho Santa Fe, Jeff George. But, uh, yeah, Sam George. I, I, yeah, hey, Sam. He liked that one. First Men on Man in North Carolina? Atlantic? It, was, it was Atlantic Beach, North Carolina. That's interesting. I'm going to have to send something to you. The guy that I'll roust is Matt Warshaw, who runs the Encyclopedia of Surfing and right. sort of updates it and stuff. See what he says. Um, well, I don't know what he We don't care says. what he says. We I, know what's I'm fact. talking about eyewitness history. Right. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Fair enough. Um, how many trips did you make to Australia? Because I believe, didn't you take one in the mid-70s where you came back? With, and for, I'm just, I'm, from yeah. what I know, from what I recall, you came back and, and really started hunkering down on the deep six channel bottom. okay this so uh i went there in 1970 into 1971 traveled around surfed a lot worked at the gns factory polishing boards and, and i shaped boards and surfed canola point and travel around there uh, i always wanted to go to byron bay i ended up at kira and uh it was funny when i ended up in kira right across the street from where i was staying at alan miss campbell's house peter townen lived he was about a 14 year old 110 pound skinny kid with a pink surfboard and uh, that's kind of how I first met him but uh, I went there 70 71 I went back again with Terry Fitzgerald at his factory in 1980 ended up judging the bells contest and realized hey if you're not in the top three surfers in the world you make more money judging the contest than entering the contest so the judging thing was really lucrative how long did you judge for I just ended up doing the, the Bell's Beach contest, oh, and when I came back, well, anyway, while I was there at at Burley, I was surfing down the way at Kira, and an old friend, Alan Byrne, who came to San Diego in the late 70s, shaped boards uh, at the local surf shop at Crystal Pier, San Diego surf shop, and he worked for Bill Castor at the Challenger thing, surfed in contest, beat everybody, and... Uh, <coughs> He goes, oh, I'll give you a ride back, but you have to sit in the back of my car because I got my board inside the car. Well, I find myself, my elbow, on top of this scrub brush of six deep gutters. And I'm going, what's this all about? Oh, my. You know, that's it. So he kind of told me what was up with those things. And he was from Kiwi, the Alan Byrne Kiwi? Yeah, he's from Gisborne. Yeah, and he moved. moved He moved. Yeah, and and he just passed away a couple years ago. But he was... uh, so just random dumb luck. You're sitting there, I, and your and your arms sitting on these beautiful. And I'm seeing these deep six channel bottoms, and he kind of gave me the rundown. Now, when I came back, I had that in my mind, and a, a guy from North County wanted me to make a six channel board. I yeah, I could do that, and I made it. And then Larry Gordon saw it because this was a outside the factory thing, and he got all pumped, and he wanted me to make them. So the next year, I did eight hundred six deep gutters. I had blisters from the barrel. Is that like 1980, 1979? 1980, no, this was... Pre, after, pre-thruster, probably. Uh, yes, because the first ones were single fins and then twin fins, and yeah. then we did the thrusters. But the, uh, the thing about that was 
people in San Diego, at least, that started doing the six deep channels, they would think, well, who cares at the bottom? Like, you're just going to put these big grooves in there. But the thing was, Alan told me, you put the same V, the same, everything you're doing, the bottom of the board, and you put those in there. Instead of making an extra concave thing, you right. still would have those things set inside of a panel uh-huh. so they would give you that drive and stuff. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that, that, was a, that was a fun time doing those. 800 in one year. That's all and I did. did. did I know that um, there was also sort of this, <coughs> sort of in the same era, guys were putting those mid, mid-bottom channels like right. that Merrick was putting in. And I even want to say Bill Castor was well, putting in the mid bottom ones not really running them off the rail well um because billy was married to my sister by this time he got married in 65 until both of their untimely deaths um i showed him my six channel and billy being the super craftsman he was and like that he has he said uh, i'm just going to put four in the middle because by then that mostly twin fins you, you know how are you going to fit the fins in there yeah. and construction wise how are you going to do it and he didn't run it off the tail he and so he called it a channel hole. And that was after I showed him the six deep channels. He modified it to just four and then had them come off because he's thinking about the nightmares of sanding them and the glassing them from a production standpoint. Yeah. So, yeah, that, he, he was the first person I saw doing those little belly channels like yeah. that. Yeah. Quick break in the podcast to tell you about Monkey Surf Resort. Check it out, monkeysresort.com. Better access to Premier Tello Island Waves. Monkeys Resort. I'm going to be going there soon. I'm very excited. Monkeysresort.com. Check it out. Now back to the podcast. This GNS team um, in the same era, like say 75 to 85, let's just say, like you were in the middle of it at GNS. Weren't you the head shaper there? No. Uh, Ron Perdonovich was. Mike Eaton shaped there. Skip Fry shaped there. John Hawley shaped there. Uh, at the time, uh, the 70. 70- 75 through 81, when the Japanese thing started going, there'd be like an order for 500 Japanese boards. First time they threw them in a box and sent them there, they wrote back, uh, you got to put what's on the box. I can just imagine all these Japanese guys <laughs> looking to try to figure out what's in every box. Yeah. And uh, so there was about 50, 35 to 50 boards a day being shaped at GNS. Radical. Yeah, and they had lots of glassers. That's the one thing about Larry Gordon and Gordon Smith. They trained the industry. I mean, all these guys, great guys that are good surfboard builders, they learned because just sure volume. Yeah. I mean, a guy would come in and, buy, and Larry would say, you look like you could be a sander. You know, you're 250 pounds. He'd give him a sander and say, go at it. And the guy would hit the sander and the board would spin off the rack and crash into the wall. And there you go. Oh, that's it. Give another one. So we got a lot of practice. Yeah. And you, earlier you asked, asked me about my influences. Well, the, the shop manager was Paul Baderi. And Paul Baderi, uh, he was one of the innovators of the Bain box. He was friends with Bill Bain. He could do everything. He was a fantastic shaper. And he's the one that really tuned me into the science of shaping a board. I mean, he could walk down the aisle and look at all these shape blanks and just stop and look and go, oh, man, really backyard, Warner, you know. And he'd show me that he, I learned so much because, I mean, there was years I did 1,200 surfboards in one year at GNS, five a day, every day, like a, a job, you know, I mean, it was a real job. Um, of course, I got seven bucks a board. So was it a fact, so though, that, that, that there were probably a few more really good board builder types as Paul was? 
But was it that he was just really a giving spirit? Because like, not everybody's going to give you the time of day, and this uh, guy had that in him. Well, Paul, he was just a really innovative guy. He ran the production. I mean, you know, when you're going through 35, 50 boards a day, and a lot of guys learning because they come and go or get burnt out or they travel in, teaching, you know, so everybody's on the same page. He totally, he's the most unsung guy. I mean, there was a time when, um, when GNS Foam, Gordon Clark came to Larry and said, well, what if I could make you your blanks for this price? And Larry went, wow, I wouldn't have to hassle for like maybe a dollar more than it's costing me? Sure. So some of those molds that Paul Berderi had made went to Clark Foam. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, at the time, they got labeled as an Eaton thing because Eaton was shaping uh, the bings at the Gina shop. But the Paul Berderi blanks were incredible because you could make a wide board and if you wanted to make a narrow board like the guns i made for roper that were flat decked it was inside of that blank because the the blanks were wide and foiled out at the rail but thick down the middle you get a beak or you get a spooned up fantastic and the thing about paul baderi is when gns folded their their uh, manufacturing in the uh, uh late 80s paul went to work for kkl the shaping machine guys as soon as he got there he straightened out a lot of stuff because every time you'd get a, a, a cut blank and you'd measure on the bottom, one side would always be wider than the other. And it's because the stringers would bend. And so Paul Berderi got with Gordon Clark and Dick Morales and said, hey, look, this is the deal. And so they he tuned in their laser cut machines and got it straight. And uh, as a, the reason why I know this is every year, uh, Gordon Clark would send out a newsletter to the industry like what's happening. And he had a whole paragraph praising Paul Baderi for straightening out their, their glue-ups and their stringers and that. And, and that's just something Paul would do. It's, I don't know. This, this is the first time I've ever heard this gentleman's name. It sounds to me like this guy's a really under, underappreciated or maybe not um, noticed. Like It seems like he deserves a little bit of um, some sort of accolade. I'll tell you what. You talk to Gary McNabb. Yeah. He'll give you a story about how great Paul Baderi is. You talk to Hoy Runnels, yeah. he'll, he'll tell you about how great, you know. All the Paul, real craftsmen uh, from the day. John no. Hawley, yeah. uh, you know, Robin Perdon. I mean, Paul yeah. Baderi, I mean, the templates, the guy could cut templates. He taught me, you know, he'd go, man, you, you got two parts on this surfboard. You know, you make it one part. He taught me you know, just a pencil line in the outline can really throw off the line of the board. And that's what you see when you look at it from a distance when you're on top of it you don't really see that stuff but yeah paul is that something that he told you to put the blank away and step back 20 feet or is that just on your um, own you just kind of learned that through osmosis i I don't remember how it happened but it might have been the fact he could walk down the factory and spot something across the way and go hey that's something's off there wow something's off there and uh, he was a little guy yeah and uh if the sander didn't show up the day he would put a milk carton up on top of the thing and sand the boards uh if the hot coders didn't show up, he'd hot color boards. He would spray the boards. He kept the production going. Uh, he was quite a guy. And there's a lot of surfboard uh, building books, like Steve Shaw did that uh, surfboard uh, builder's guide mm-hmm. back in. There's pictures of Paul Berderi in there when he had a lot of hair. Little Paul Italy. <laughs> he was a great guy. He just passed away last year, uh-huh. and um, he was a a really giving guy, like you said. And he he really um, he worked. That's what made Gordon Smith so good. You know, people go, oh, that, you know, Gordon Smith, Gordon. It was the workers there. The yeah. guys that Larry hired yeah. were the people that, that did the work. Yeah. And uh, Paul was the main guy, uh, production guy, that held it all together. And your, your biggest influence? 
when it comes to making the board, you know, learning how to shape a surfboard, you know, not just whittle on it until you think it's done, but to picture it, bottom, deck profile, the thickness flow, and then the rails, you know, and, and that, that was because yeah. he, he had some technique that was really cool how he did it. Yeah. What about Bill Castor? I imagine he's a contemporary of yours more than like an well, older brother. Or well, he's he... like an older brother to me. Yeah. And uh, Bill and I would have, I mean, you talk to Peter St. Pierre at, at Moonlight. You could talk to Bill at night on the phone for an hour at a time. Bill was probably about six years older than me. Um, he was the first guy I learned a lot of stuff of balancing the decal on the blank with the board so it looks together you know you don't put something so far up the nose that throws off the outline you want to complement everything he was a real stickler for the package you know the package and um you know his board quality were really good it wasn't so much as workers it was after everyone that did their job on it he would go back fill in bubbles in the glass jobs with the the, the hypodermic he he could patch a board incredibly and he would just tune them tune him in he really cared about the boards and we would talk and he he would tell me lots of stuff what's going on matter of fact that's how my probably the biggest influence when it comes to the short board with terry fitzgerald is because this guy wanted to find somebody to shape terry's boards in america and they went to bill and bill goes oh talk to my brother-in-law and that's how that happened oh, yeah and so um when i think of casters i often think of of um just this incredible rail foil like this. The, it was so beautiful, and it came down to such a thin, yeah. specifically that Chris O'Rourke model. Right. It just came down to such a beautiful foil on his boards. Well, here's the thing about Bill. He's making boards in the late 50s for his uncle, select surfboards. Uh, Lloyd Baker, who probably has the uh, identity as being the first custom shaper in Point Loma. He, he, Is he, he related to Admiral Baker in some way? I don't think so, yeah. but possibly. Yeah. Uh, but Skeeter Malcolm and uh, Marsh Malcolm that got a lot of guys out at uh, Hoover High and that surfing at Crawford High, they were surf coaches. They they were Mission Beach surfers back in the 40s and that. But anyway, Billy was shaping and making incredible boards. Matter of fact, him and Henson were buddies, and uh, they wanted to go on a surf trip because, uh, you know, in the early 60s, these guys shaping these big old boards with all the wood, they're making like 200 bucks a week. The average wage was about $80 a week. So the swell hits Hawaii. Henson and Bill would jump on an airplane for the weekend and surf Alamon and come back. They would do each other's boards to get them done. Well, Billy started, he bailed out of Olympic. He sold it to some other guy and started Castor Surfboards in 1965. He was going gangbusters for the first six months, but in July of that month, he got drafted. Ended up going to Fort Polk, Louisiana. Uh, he put his head down and said, well, everybody that surfed would go, oh, I'll act like a screw-up, and they'll kick me out. Well, all they did back in the Vietnam era is, okay, here, here's a gun, your infantry. So Billy said, okay, I'm here. He knuckled down and did really good. They sent him to uh, school in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And so his overseas tour of duty was Alaska as a postal clerk. And the infantry guys up there would get up there in the wintertime and pack the snow and he'd go skiing <laughs> and so uh he he was his two years would have been up in july of 67 
Well, Bobby Thomas, that owned Challenge of Surfboards, wrote a letter saying, I need him to get out early because the season for surfboards was pretty much, you know, March, April, May for shipping all the boards to the East Coast because that's where they all used to go. And so Billy got out early and started shaping Challengers. Well, the thing that happened at that time, the boards went from the cool, multi-stringered, crafted long boards that Billy was making, now the shortboard thing where a lot of people got lost, yeah. you know, in yeah. the whole thing. And so uh, he started working there in, in 67, and then that evolved back into Castor Surfboards, uh, a long, convoluted story. Uh, in 74, he started doing the Castor label that we all kind of know now and was known for those type of boards and, and the quality and all that. What about Skip? Obviously, Skip Fry's got to have some big influence on you. Um, well, Skip as a person, I mean, he, when I was 12... 13, Skip was living in South Mission. And in the summertime, this one first summer, it's probably the summer of 62, maybe 63, he would walk up to my house and knock on my door. And I got to be like clockwork. I know what, 10 minutes to seven every day, he would be there, knock my door. He'd ride me on my bike up to Crystal Pier and we'd surf. And then he'd buy me breakfast at the uh, Villa de Petrocelli which is right next to where the GNS shop was, 40 cents, well, actually 42 cents with tax, one egg, toast, hash browns, and hot tea. <laughs> and um, Skip was uh, working as a bus boy at that time, not a, a box boy at the DeFalco's, but then he got into sanding surfboards. Then, and as a person, you know, he took surfing, he, he, you know, he just, you know, I, I'd get a new surfboard before I even met Skip. I just had seen him around. My first surfboard, I've got it uh, made in 1962. Henson shaped it, and I found it years later. It was an 8.6, which is probably the smallest board at the beach at the time. Still written on the stringer, sanded by Scipio for Cousin Hanky. And Skip was a sander. Well, so what happened was when Phil Edwards came out with a model, well, Henson had to have a model. So Henson was going to do his own model and go to Hobie, but Larry Gordon gave him model gns and then when things with that got slippery with henson the next logical thing skip was going to go to phil castagnola's olympic surfboards and start shaping his model there well larry heard that and went oh no you're you skip fry model here and so that's when skip really started shaping do you think there's an olympic out there with yes skip shape um there's there's philip castagnola jr may have one there are some uh i mean did, would skip say yeah i made a couple of olympics there they could be floating around I, I i you know what i was on the list to get like the fifth one made and mm-hmm. they never got that far right um that's just sort of an interesting yeah, story you know there there may be one but the you funny, think phil jr might have he he would he would know more than anybody yeah. but um the thing about skip's boards as they evolved he went to australia in 67 came back with the short board thing and with the transitional to V bottom, right? And and if you look, you could have a board now from Skip. It still mimics the same personality as those boards he was making in the later sixties. He's he's so methodical. He made me a really neat egg, and this is when he got into eggs. He was riding a board called Egg Bolt because Steve Seabolt had shaped this egg, <laughs> and the board was so light and so crunchy. The more Skip rode it, the more saggy the tail got. And Skip was going, oh, yeah, that's, you know, the, the flex in that. So when he shaped me aboard a 6'9", 1969, he goes, ah, oh, I think I overdid the tails too thin. Well, shade tree glassing, 
Bruce Sins and PB glassed the board for me. No problem. The board rode pretty good. I actually got eight millimeter films of me surfing this board. I wish I surfed like that now. And Skip goes, let me try that. And he rode it immediately, took it down to his shaping room at the PB surf shop where he was shaping at GNS's PB surf shop, sanded off my fin, the glassed on fin, moved it up like a half an inch, glassed it back on and did all the thing. And I got back on the board and it was like, it was insane. Skip, yeah. Skip is the only guy I've ever seen surfing PB Point. Would come out of the water, take a rock, and start working on his fin, and then go back out, and and then oh, that's right, he's so tuned into everything. Yeah. So it, there's a quote that I often attribute to Skip, and I don't know if it's his, but but um, and it goes something like this: that uh, a surfboard's at its best two weeks before it delaminates, as far as the the flex pattern, and it's just really fitting in like a pair of yeah, that, you know it, it, that that might be true because he, I know he learned a lot about that kind of stuff. Uh, with that egg bolt that he started making the eggs. But uh, I think the best quote from Skip, and I got a lot of crazy Skip stories because we had a shop together called Harry's because my real name's Harry and Skip's real name's Harry. So we had Harry's yes, apostrophe more than one uh, for 10 years at Crystal Pier, which was a, a fun time. But Skip's best quote, not the best, one of the good ones. If Ponce de Leon was looking for the fountain of youth, he should have just jumped overboard into the ocean. Saltwater, you know, because yeah. you look at Skip now, seventy-eight years old. Well, both of you guys, you guys kind of, you kind of um, have taken on the sort of rabbit kakai, like super old grommet thing. You know what I <laughs> well, mean? Well, Skip, Skip is every day. He's surfing. He's, yeah, I mean, he's he can look at the surf and have his little transistor radio getting the weather report, and then he goes and he looks at all of his boards, which I won't even tell you how many he's got, but it's unbelievable. Which one's talking to him? So that that where Skip is now. Somebody wants to order a particular model. Well, he'll find one of those boards in his stash and surf it. And then he'll shape that guy's board that day off of this living brochure, not a, a nifty colored oh, brochure, cool. but a live board. And then alter from that board that he rode that day into, you know, what the guy's board is. That's what's so special about Skip. He's, yeah. he's just so finicky. Yeah. Um, he takes longer to sign his name than he does to shape a board. It's about it's just get that s. One of the what, a, a good skip fry just to show you this guy would not even cheat at solitaire. We're surfing every September seventh his birthday. We'd That's go, a pretty good quote right there. Yeah, every every September seventh we'd go. Everyone would get together and, and surf a skip on his birthday. A lot of times it's Malibu, Santa Nofre, things like that. Now he's closer to home. He doesn't like to travel that much, but. We were at San Onofre, and it was a pretty good-sized day, and he paddles back out, and he goes, oh, I just got the longest left I've ever got here. And he, you know, from Stern Courts or whatever he had a name, from there all the way to there. And I went, wow, that was far. And then he kind of looked at the ground and said, well, well, actually out the ocean and the water. He goes, well, actually, I caught a longer left a couple of years ago, but I wasn't keeping track then. <laughs> and I go, I go, skip. You know, we surfed Rincon one time, and his whole goal at Rincon was to take off at the estuary and make it all the way through to the freeway. Well, this was a great January day where the sun was out. You could almost trunk it. Yeah. All day long, we're surfing all day long, and it's getting toward dark. And Skip's been out for the third or fourth time, cause, you know, and we see him come around the point. Oh, he made it through. All right. 
we're not thinking of this. Next thing you know, look, we see the back of him kind of in a speed stance. He goes, he's heading for, he's heading for the freeway, and he made it all the way through. You know, and he, and he does stuff like that. Yeah. He's, got, he's got every day for the last 30, 40 years written on a calendar. He puts them all there and goes, when I got married to Shelly in March 16th, 1996 in 95 i said skip we're gonna get married at pb point when would be a good day you know when the tides way out and all that and this was in october and he goes well yeah this favorite well the tide right in the middle of the day march 16th it's a minus tide at 130 you know blah, 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 blah. he goes but you know it always rains that week but it clears up <laughs> this would be told me in october well my wedding week it was rainy, rainy, rainy. That Friday night, it cleared up, and the next day was like Santa Ana, beautiful conditions. Is that March 16th? That's March 16th. Because it's March 12th right now, and I it's going to clear up in four days. Well, he's got the rhythm of everything going. That's pretty and, cool. And, and Skip is just that pure of a guy. He's just aware of all that stuff. Yeah. He's a great Hey, just a quick break in the podcast to tell you about FYI CBD, you can get 20% off your order from FYI CBD by using the promo code boardroom20. 20% off FYI CBD. You got pain. I got pain. I got old man pain. I got back pain. I got elbow pain. I got knee pain. FYI CBD relieves pain. FYI CBD.com. Check it out. Now back to the podcast. Other guys, Hinson, what did you take from your influence from Mike Henson? Well, Henson's, Henson's a funny guy. I remember I, I made a board in mid-70s, and uh, Richard Munson, we called Dickie Munson back then from Florida, was living in Kauai, and he came back with these wings that went off the tail uh, with single fins. And I made myself one of those, and... It worked really good. It just it, It's like body surfing when you put your hands out and you're playing off your hands. The tail of the board with those little thin little uh-huh. wings going out. Now they got the, the G wing that's further up. That's where Goober or Gary Goodrum got that. He moved it up. But I, mine was off the tail. It lifted the tail out of the water. It was really cool. So I've got that, and I'm surfing Southbird one beautiful day, and Henson's there with Mike Haley. And he sees my board, and he's like, oh, man, Haley, check this out. And he's all cracking up like that, you know. So I'd, I always have conversations with Mike. And at, at one time, I'm going like, well, you know, Mike, you know, I, I'm not selling anything. And he goes, don't you worry, Hank. Your time will come. Right now, it's mine, you know. <laughs> he's just the classic, you know. He is a classic. Henson's, yeah. Hens, you know, and, and just like Mission Bay High. I went to Mission Bay High. Skip went to Mission Bay High. Henson went to Mission Bay High. Larry Gordon went to Mission Bay High. Bill Castor went to Mission Bay High. You know, uh, a lot of a lot of Bobby Thomas. You know, a lot of surf guys in PB surfed there. Well, it brings up sort of a, a little bit of a grander thing that I often point to, and it's that for whatever reason, San Diego County, and and for sure down in San Diego proper, it's always been this really um, flourishing, budding um, surfboard manufacturing vibe there. I mean, you could go back to Simmons even, right? And say, for whatever reason, and maybe it's the naval town, maybe it's the naval architecture. I don't even know. I'm just trying. I've been trying to grasp at this for a long time. They call San Diego now like a craft beer place. Yeah. San Diego's been a surfboard building hub for 70 years or whatever it is. Why do you think San Diego, and we also have Oceanside up here now, Oceanside too. Oceanside now, because a lot of people and move Shannon. north. I remember surfing Crystal Pier, 
and having some a guy named Billy Borden, they had to move to North County. Uh, oh, what a bummer. You can, either, <laughs> you can only surf Swamis or Cardiff and maybe a place called Tamarack, not knowing about all the other spots. But yeah. we thought, you know, that was, there was no, other, no surf up there. Yeah. But San Diego, okay, Convair and uh, that. Did your parents work there? My mom worked at Convair. Yeah. Um, I know Roper's father did. I yeah. think. My dad did. My mom worked there. Um, her dad was the editor of the San Diego Sun, won the first Pulitzer Prize west of the Mississippi in 1921, mm-hmm. writing about the eclipse of the sun and the effect on the farm animals in San Diego. And every time they had that eclipse of the sun, they, they, in 92, they reprinted his whole story on the, on the front page. And then just two years ago, it happened again. It was just a little footnote in one of the columns that, oh, Magner White, you know, da-da-da-da. But... Um, they, the guys that worked at Convair, you know, because they built surfboards, they could use resin and stuff and make models. So that yeah. happened. But to me, what made San Diego the place, it was not L.A. where everybody, the media and everything was up there. But San Diego, we had guys that could, we could surf all year round. You know, the East Coast, 90% of the boards up until the 70s came from the West Coast. They'd come out of the snow wanting to surf, you know, after Easter vacation, and we'd send boards to all those shops, and they'd buy them up, and that's where they all used to go. It's kind of how the fin box got created, because how are you going to pack boards back there with a big fin? But you could surf all year round. Uh, Larry Gordon, having that factory where people could get in there, and there's plenty of, uh, you know, repetition of practicing learning how to do it. But the main thing is, in San Diego, if it's a south swell, there's plenty of surf, surf spots to hit. If it's a north swell, there's plenty of spots to hit. If it's high tide, if it's low tide, if it's south wind, if it's north wind, if it's... I mean, all these places. Back in the day, we had no idea about, you know, forecasting and stuff. We just know, like, in the summertime, you know, when the water warmed up, we were surfing lefts off the pier, and the point didn't work. And then, you know, in the wintertime, it'd be the point and the pier would be closed out and stuff like that. So I think that's what helped. Plus, you know, San Diego, when I was at Mission Beach Elementary, they had the Rand McNally map they'd pulled down in front of the uh, chalkboard. And I'd look up there and I'd go, well, there's Los Angeles and there's the Mexican border. And this is where we are, but we weren't even on the map. <laughs> San Diego wasn't even on the map. Yeah. That's why that moniker, San Diego's finest city, happened because uh, – about I don't remember somewhere in the later '60s, middle '60s, they they started doing that, and they go that's San Diego. You know, it wasn't L.A. The Chamber good. of Commerce came yeah. up with it. Or yeah, it, and that's still stuck. But you know, now it's uh, it's been loved to death. Yeah, it has. Yeah. It. it is certainly fascinating that that we have this real big support building culture here, and and it's robust. And it's kind of cool. Yeah. Um. Those boards that you made, Roper. Um, I mean, he rode those boards. All those board, all those photos I see of Joe Roper at Pipeline, doing the sole arches with the scallop leg trunks, and and at Big Rock with full suits on, but, and doing the same sole arch. Those yeah. are all Hank Warner pintails. Pretty much. That must make you feel pretty good. I mean, that's that's like full on history. Well, Joe, the first time Joe went to Hawaii was 1977, and I went over there. That's when I met Fitz. I made Joe what I thought would work. It was a yellow board. Uh, matter of fact, that first year, he had a full-page picture of him walking up the beach with that board, 
the rainbow in the back. Well, Joe's the kind of guy, uh, most of those good surfers, they would blame the surfboard. Joe rode that surfboard, came back and go, hey, we got to make changes. He stuck with me and made the changes that he wanted. Uh, you know, he didn't bail out on the board midway through the trip in Hawaii and get the local board, you know, because that's kind of what happened back in the days. All boards work differently in different conditions. And if the best surfer is riding a particular board doing certain maneuvers, everyone's got to have that type of board to copy that. So people go to Hawaii and you see Larry Bertelman surfing. Well, you couldn't do it with our California board. So that was the thing. Well, anyway, I commend Joe because I think he's such an honest person. You know, he just stuck with me and came back every year and goes, okay, this is what we got to do different. This is what we got to do different, you know, all the way through. And now he's got some of those boards because he still collects them. His son, my godson, Jojo, has taken some of those boards and wrote them in, in ways like Port Escondido, snapped some. I've had to re, re-clone those. And Jojo gets some of those. I mean, yeah. mostly he gets the rusties, the guns and that stuff. But there's a lot of boards that I do for Jojo. They're just basically off a board that I made for his dad, you know, up until the 90s. And stuff. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is good. How do you stay in shape? You're 70 years old. You're in great shape. Well, you surf a lot, probably every day or every day you can. Well, that, that makes I, sense. I, I, I'll tell you, you know, what really, what really happened was I had my first kid in my whole life when I was 53. Wow. I had a, a, a boy, Wyatt. He's 17 now. And then I had Rhett, who's 14. And running around with those kids, um, I, st- I started realizing what it was doing because other people would say like, man, you know, it, you don't have a gray hair. What's going on? And I, got, I, got, I, I guess it's those kids running me around. <laughs> but, you know, way back in the day, you know, I, I had kids late. Um, it was like, well, couldn't chase women anymore. You're too old. Couldn't party like you used to. Didn't have to work all the time to make a living. I know. My retirement plan would be I'll raise kids because I remember uh, talking to some of my old surf buddies. Hey, how's life going? And a couple of them tuned me in and going, oh, it's really great. I have grandkids now. I was never around for my kids. I was out partying. I was working. I didn't have any time. I didn't even see them grow up. But now I got grandkids and I've got time and I'm taking them surfing and stuff. So that, those things kind of like pumped in. And then in the last uh, few years, you know, 10 years, I've kind of become conscious of that. Yeah. And, um, you know, just I think it's when uh, Dr. Paskowitz signed a book surfing and health kind of tuned me in yeah and that and that was something i took but um when i went to australia in 1970 i stayed in new zealand for six weeks and we had a land rover with the locals and we surfed everywhere and it was fantastic and i was into drinking tea but when i finished that cup of tea i could take a spoon and take so much sugar out of the bottom of that and this guy's dad said oh you know You've got worms. That's why you're eating all the sugar. So to prove to him I didn't, I stopped using sugar, and it's just stuck since you know I was 20 years old. Yeah. And salt. I don't. I, when Doc Stern said, "Oh, you get not Doc Stern, Doc Pasquitt said you get as much salt just in the normal food, canned foods. You get eight times more than you need. Why put it on? So I don't use stuff like that. Yeah. You know, got rid of saw hints and eating yogurt and wheat germ you know back in the in the day you know and so uh, you know i kind of grew up just on tuna yeah yeah albacore tuna right but uh, 
And my mom, she just passed away a couple of years ago. She was 95. Absolutely no medical problems, no strokes, cancers, heart problems. She just got old and passed away in good shape. And she was, you know, when I was learning how to drive, I'd make her sit next to me and drive by the beach. And everybody thought I was with a chick. <laughs> <laughs> Because you didn't want to be able to know your your learner's permit, you know, and right. you got your mom, go, mom, sit next to me, and you go by and they go, whoa, who's that? <laughs> so the genetics, I think, was a, plays a big part in I that. I think so. That's good. That's yeah. really good. I'm glad to hear she had a healthy life. She did. She was great. Um, I was going to reflect a little bit just before we leave here on um, some of these GNS team riders that you made boards for. And um, I showed you a picture as you walked into my house. I think that was Jack yeah. Cassidy and yeah. his brother. Jack and Ted. Oh, this is Ted. Yes. Ted. I, see, I surf with Ted occasionally yeah. out here. Yeah. And um, and there's, of course, East Coast guys. Charlie Kuhn yep. comes to mind. and um, Jimmy Hogan. Jimmy Hogan from up yeah. here in San Clemente. Yeah. And um, some other guys that are – oh, Brandon Hayes. Yeah, I was going to bring his name up. Yeah, so, I mean, this is quite a crew of red-hot surfers during a period of time like the early 80s when pro surfing and the whole surfing mojo was really flourishing. I yeah. mean, it was kind of coming on here in California. And you were right in the middle of this time when we went from single fin from those six-channel single yeah. fins to all of a sudden twin fins, and then two years later we're in tri-fins, and you were right in the middle of well, the heyday of this. Now, Simon Anderson came up with that first tri-fin, you know, and bonders were around, but he had a tri-fin. When I was in Australia in 1980, he had a single fin that had the outline of what those uh, tri-fins were. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, you want it? You can have it. And I go, oh, I'm staying with Terry Fitzgerald. I'm not going to take an energy board back. But I kind of got tuned into that board because it looked really cool. Yeah. And then when he came out, I knew what it was. Yeah. But then Bolton Colburn, yeah. he came in and, and kind of did that. Uh Brandon Hayes, I made him aboard, and he was such a cartoon character. He was unbelievable. He, he, uh, we were hanging with the Rip Curl guys, Claw and, and those guys, and they just saw Brand, Brandon Hayes, and, and they wanted him on the team, and he was in their ads. But I made him a, a board, kind of a little twin fin, swallowtail, did some crazy things on it, and he went to, to Texas and won the, the amateur contest there. On a little footnote, I haven't heard nor seen Brandon Hayes 30 years, 40 years. Well, on Instagram, I posted an old picture. And then I got a DM from Brandon Hayes. And it just said, still the best board I ever had that I made him. That's sweet. And, and cool that's just that? in the last week. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah. And, he, and Brandon was just, you know, he could, he could do a head dip backwards and yeah. pull himself back up. He yeah. was an incredible surfer. Yeah, he was sort of cutting edge yeah. of Shores guy. Yeah. And Jack Cassie, I still run into him a lot. And, uh, and Mickey Miner and those guys. Um, I was more closer to Roper because, yeah. you know, PB and Roper was more of a soul guy where yeah. those guys were more colored wetsuits exactly, and stuff. And yeah. My DNA still was kind of yeah, yeah. not that way. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Are there any young board builders now? Yes. That, that you go, wow, I, I really I, like that guy's scene. I'll tell you who I am just totally impressed with, and that's, uh, well, there's a couple of people. Shaping-wise is Ryan Birch. Yeah. Uh, incredible. I've, over the last couple of years, I've seen a lot of his boards come through different factories that I was at, Diamond, before it closed down. Does a good job. He's a good kid. He's not egoed out. He's a great surfer. Yeah. He's really good. 
And then, you know, you got Jojo Roper glassing his own boards, doing a great job. And he, you know, yeah. he'd think it'd be a natural, but he just glasses his own. But, you know, he's, he's learned the, the thing pretty well. Yeah. But that's what's happened to the industry. It's too much work for kids nowadays. <laughs> it's too much work. Oh, I mean, I remember coming from Mission Beach, five of us, we drove to Cardiff. Well, we didn't drive. The guy's mom and her boyfriend drove us to Cardiff. We came down from the north where the, the water goes through the bridge and drove off of 101 down into the sand. And we slept on the beach. The sheriff came at night and they're in the back seat. And he goes, oh, the kids are camping out. Oh, okay. We're around a campfire. Now, hey, we're going to go to Santa Cruz. You know, we're going to sleep in the car. What? Are we going to sleep in a hotel? Does it have Wi-Fi? Does it have, you know... You know, you know, it's just, it's just not, you know, I, you I need to have a summer camp, like Camp yeah. Hank, where you just set them straight. Oh, well, I'll tell you, send them to Joe Roper. They get them set. Exactly. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's just not that it's too much work. Now there are, uh, there, there's some young guys that work for Joe Roper and he's got them tuned in. Yeah. And like Joe for a long time was going, oh man, this is Joe Roper school of surfboard building. Cause there's several guys that are in the surfboard business now they started ding repairing and now they got their own business and they're doing pretty well but that's all just gleaned off of joe you know yeah. training them yeah but um i think for the most part what's happened is you think of diamond glassing doing a hundred something boards a week psg doing a hundred something boards a week um you know the channon shop the gns shop well now you're lucky if you're doing 20 25 a week yeah, uh, and it's all us old guys that have been working together for a long time, and um, y- you know, th- there's not enough to learn yeah. like the GNS days or the volume, and so there's there's just too much hard work. Yeah, for kids that want to get into it. Yeah, they want to get it. They start sweeping the shop up, and until they they get in there, and then they get a surfboard out of the deal, and then they're gone. Yeah, they don't want to learn. There's a f- couple, but yeah. I, uh, Ryan Birch is is the the guy I think is the future of California surfing and that. He's just an unbelievable guy. Yeah, for sure. And I think his dad's a surfboard builder. His dad's passed away, but he was a red-hot oh, surfer. Oh, yeah. He used to surf with us at Swamis oh, yeah. a lot. and um, Really, really great surfer. Super good style guy. I used to always just go, wow. Yeah, well, that's Ryan Burt's got that style, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. There's, real quick, last thing. It seems like, you know, how the boardroom show, it, we we try to honor handcrafted shaping situation, but I've always felt like guys like, and you know, these guys better than I do, but guys like Gary Stuber, who I know very well. And there's guys that come off of his chain guys that he learned from. There's a guy that lives in Idaho now that he told me about that. And there's these guys all around and especially down where you're at that it would just be neat if some way we could make one of those shapers trees, but for glassing for laminator, a laminators tree, George Larson, he might be, yeah, like it starts there maybe. I, mean, I don't know. But where we could just. Well, yeah, actually, I Steve Swan. Uh, I mean, guys like that. Root Swan's older brother. He's now living in Washington. He's probably close to 80-ish. Makes surfboards. One fin, one god. And he works at a brewery up there. And he makes surfboards up there. Uh, he was a, we called him Hot Bat Swan. Uh, so who taught Hot Batch Swan? That's kind of where I'm coming from. Well, like, where do we start? There's a the- picture I just saw on Instagram that I'd seen years ago of Willie Phillips, Bob Phillips, and Skip Fry glassing Skip's first surfboard in the garage in PB that Mike Diffender for shaped Skip. In the street at South Bird, Skip sat on the board while Diff shaped it. It was a wood keep board. Keep the rocker to, in it? Or? No, to keep the board from falling off oh, the stands in right. the street. But um, 
Floyd so the Phillips. Yeah, the Phillips. Willie Phillips was a great So who great taught surf- them? Like, that's what I'm wondering. Uh, where I, do we germinate I, this thing from? Uh, you know, I think it's guys like Skeeter Malcolm and Lloyd Baker. Uh, I mean, the, the the oldest guy now, I think, that is just marvelous is Jim Mouse Rob in Ocean Beach. He's still around. Mousy, he was back there in the day. Yeah. Um, at some point, Bob Simmons mixed up some resin and put it on a board. Or was it before him? Um, as, far, as far as I know, Bob Simmons was a real intelligent guy. And because I know of, he was a little bit of a whack job. Because but... of his, his withered arm, uh-huh. he wanted something light. Yeah. And that's when he got in the exotic light balsa wood instead yeah. of the big heavy. I can't even carry those boards. Uh, and... To give it some strength, because balsa was so light, he you know used that technology of making airplane wings, the the fiberglass and stuff. So, um, the thing about making a surfboard back then, glassing it wise, you lay it up double six, single six bottom or more on a blank that was hard as this table, and then they'd sand the heck out of it, and it'd be all white with the cloth showing, and then they'd gloss it, and it'd be clear, and you could throw it off the cliff, and it wouldn't get hurt. Now, the way we're making boards, it's pretty high-tech where each stage has something going to it, so the end result is really good and strong and light. But, um, you know, I'm only 70. <laughs> and uh, What do you got the, planned for the, us? The, the, first time, the first time I walked into a surfboard factory was, was uh, Billy Castor's Olympic surfboard factory. And, you know, that was 1960. Yeah. So they were going through the motions there. You know, all I knew is they walked it and spread it out and they'd cut it and flip it and, and then the sander. That's one of my first jobs in the surfboard thing was hand sanding the rails for a dollar a board, which was pretty good. Yeah. But it was itchy. Oh, yeah. And uh, it, that was my did first. You, did you feel like pretty quick, like, okay, I'm out of here? Hey, I was told, hey, just sand it till the clear spots are gone. Oh. And, you know, that was because – the whiteout would disappear when you glossed it. Yeah. But, um, so, but, but to get back to this thing, wouldn't it be neat if, if, if I could get my act together enough to somehow create some sort of the laminators, a, a tree, you know, like that gives them, like they need to be exalted a little well, bit. Tony Channon. Yeah. Buddy, buddy. Well, actually Tony Erzich, buddy Channon, uh, was a pretty crafty guy. I mean, you know, locally, you know, it was, Tony Channon was uh, one guy. And then, like I said, Steve Swan. And uh, I mean, now we've got these, you know, we've got Alex and we've got Super Justin Wolf. Turnus, who's yeah. doing these insane yeah, vacuum bag vacuum jobs. Bag. Yeah. yeah. Some cool stuff going on. Yeah. There is some good exotic stuff going on. But like I said, I, 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 I have a problem with all these high price surfboards. I still think gasoline should be 22 cents a gallon. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, you know, and the whole thing about the surfboard being seven bucks, we got paid at GNS seven dollars a board. It's because Larry Gordon designed a shaping machine. It was basically a, a lath machine where you could adjust it. Yeah. And he started doing that, and John Hawley looked at it and said, "You start that machine," and he got his power, and I'll do my power planer. And Larry was paying seven bucks for somebody to run that machine and finish it off the machine, and Hawley beat him, and then Larry went handcrafted for seven bucks got rid of the shape machine and that was our thing uh-huh. until swallowtail came along we got another dollar uh-huh. you know and then the wings 
Yeah. And then thank goodness for the Mark Richards model that we did at GNS for four years, like over a thousand of those. Yeah. Ron Perdonovich did most of them. We got $12 a board. Yeah. And then when I brought in these six deep channels, oh, I was getting $20 a board. Yeah. yeah. That was big stuff. And Larry Gordon was stoked on that too. I mean, I'm yeah, sure it yeah. was a markup all the way around. Yeah. 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 He, he worked on percentages. Cool. Anyway, that's, God, there's so much to talk about in Surfwise, but who knows? Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot going on. Yeah. I mean, we could, I'll just finish with this. Um, cause I know you got to run. Um, this idea of a guy like me or whoever, but just a guy that's a kook when it comes to building surfboards has never built a surfboard. Um, I go and I buy the software, I download it onto my computer for, how, for some reason, there's a board loaded already into the software I buy. I send it over to a machine, get it cut, finish it, put a label on it, and now I'm in the surfboard business. Hey, there's, a, there's a few guys that are very successful that travel from Australia to Japan to France to California, and that's basically what they've got is a groovy logo, uh, you know, hipster-style look, and got the terminology, and they got their little laptop. And they get them made. You know, hey, that's fine. That's why I like doing custom boards. The guys, they come in. I show them their board. I'm, you know, I, I get the rocker pattern on there. I show them the blank and we're going to do. And I draw the outline on them, you know, and they get to see the board being created. Um, the thing about the machine, that one thing that, that I kind of resent the machine in one way at the beginning was back in the day, shop on the east coast let's say grog surf palace he would order six surfboards from me he would order 12 surfboards from rusty he would order 20 surfboards from almeric well he'd get six from me he'd get six from rusty and he'd get six from almeric because he couldn't get enough the shaving machine came along he'd order six rusties and get 12 <laughs> order, order 20 malmerics and get 30 and they're going, we don't need your board. I mean, we got, we, yeah. we're getting these guys are supplying us. And it was all the shaping machine thing. Yeah. And so uh, the machine is a good thing. It, it does recreate. And yeah. it, it is good. I mean, I always thought Skip Fry, because Skip Fry won't even touch a blank unless it's exactly what he wants to start with. Yeah. He could start with his board and do what he does best is just neater how he likes to tune things in and, and yeah. do stuff. And it would be, you know... And he thinks, oh, they'll steal it on the machine and copy it. Like, it as long as it doesn't have the fry wing on there, you know, I could do that. I'm not going to sell. I can't sell them if I did that and say, oh, it's a skip fry. Yeah. It doesn't have it. Yeah. So the machine made the luxury of mass producing boards. Well, now it's gotten to where it's off seas, overseas, whatever. Uh, I just think the local surfboard builder... Shaping them anywhere. I send boards to Puerto Rico. I send boards to Italy. I send boards, you know, Japan, all over. It doesn't have to be like, you know, you know our waves. I mean, a surfboard's a surfboard if you know what they want. I sort of also feel like, um, like you mentioned early on in your, um, when you were a youngster, this idea of going by the GNS factory on, by Crystal Pier. Every day. And I remember as a 15-year-old going up to Channon and knocking on the door and having Jack Jensen go, what do you want? And I, yeah. I'd like a board, you know. Yeah. And, and. And there was something magical about that. And I don't know how to grasp it or what it is. You know, it's just this feeling that 
you're kind of now let in on the, you're on the inside now. You're in, you're in with the crew, you know? And I think that's sort of, I don't know, maybe I'm just old and nostalgic, but I feel like that's kind of a bummer if I go and, and I'm the computer guy and I'm like, yeah, just send me an email. I'll send you a board in three weeks. You know, like well, there's something magical and I, I, I hope we can hang on to that. And I know we can with guys like you still doing what you do. Yeah, well, there's, there's you know, several of my close friends, you know, Wayne Rich and Bob Mitzvin and Stu Kenson, Scipio, um, you know, Josh Hall's trying to get in there a bit. But, uh, you know, there's just there, 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 there was a time when either high, high end or low, low, low. And it's kind of gotten to be more of that. You know, you, you, you'll pay a lot more to get that experience. And the people, it's like if I went snow skiing, I'd go to Hanson and say, I'm going skiing. Give me skis. I wouldn't care if they gave me wood, plastic, yeah. tin, you know, how are I just going to go skiing. And the other thing that this, this, the cheaper boards, even the soft boards, like at Costco, it used to be, you wanted to surf, you better wait, get that custom board made. That's the only way you get a surfboard because there wasn't enough to go around. And then you'd ride it once, give up, leave it in your garage. And now they're collectibles years later or they did get, they got cut down. Well, now you go to a surf spot. There might be a hundred people out. 80 of them have got this $99 thing yeah. and they're trying it and they're surfing. And, you know, their conscience is, okay, we're going to go surfing at 7 to 8 o'clock at Tourmaline on Thursday. Yeah. And I see them walk down. They're talking. They're doing their thing. They get down to the beach. And all of a sudden, they realize, my God, it's victory at sea. The waves are breaking 100 miles out. It's gigantic. So they sit down for their hour and talk. And then it's time to do their next thing and get up and go. You know, <laughs> that's, that's almost the majority of what's happening. they got to go mountain bike. Yeah. I mean, I've been out surfing and being going along on a wave, hauling butt, and way down the line, somebody will take off on a softboard or whatever and come out and I'll, I'll go around them and they'll go, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, and I go, yeah, you just made me fall off. They go, don't you have a leash? You know, like, <laughs> but, you That's know, crazy. It, thank goodness, you know, that Skip is still showing the way for a lot of us, you yeah. know, because, I mean, I, I will miss the day when I'm surfing PB Point and I go out early because I'm anxious for it to get good, and it's just not quite right. And then all of a sudden, the right set starts coming. It's hitting the reef just right. I'll turn around and catch a wave, and as I'm surfing, I'll realize Skip just walked down the cliff. He's just got there right at the perfect time. Yeah. And a stoke. Yeah. You know, the stoke. Yeah. You know, and, and I just hope the day doesn't come where I'm trying to get stoke off of the newer crowd. But there are some kids that are happening. Yeah. Well, Cool. Thanks, Hank Warner. I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate you being here and sharing your stories. Oh, there. I'm so shy. I really have a hard time talking about anything. <laughs> okay, well, until next time. Thanks, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me on, Scott. Appreciate yeah. it.
Should I be afraid to die? There's no reason for it. You've got to go sometime. 